This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This week, we look at the aviation training program at the University of Maine, Augusta, as they unveil their new SR-20. Learn about preparing for a career as an airline pilot and what some of the UMA graduates are doing now. In the news, Boeing and Airbus orders from Farnborough, Delta Tech Ops to become a Leap 1B service provider, the aircraft fighter market forecast, an open fan engine demonstrator, thoughts on dropping the KC-46 co-pilot, electronic bag tags from Alaska Airlines, airline pilots who decide to exit the plane, and the outlook for rebalancing travel demand and airline capacity. Also, the best museum for families, and more Perhaps too much more on cows and pancakes. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. This is episode 709 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight and joining me is first Rob Mark. He's a contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group, and he's publisher at Jetwine.com. You know, you always sound very um, surprised to have me back on. I am I'm surprised. I'm not quite sure. Why, why is that, Max? Well, you am surprised. I mean, you, you is surprised. We never know. No, that would be you are surprised. Um, no, hey, listen, thank you very much for having me back, and it's fun, and uh, like uh, my compatriot there, Max West, I've had a few ups and downs over the last uh, uh, few weeks, and I'm, but I'm on my way back to, uh, where, where am I going again? Uh, I'm on my way back to normal, yes. Okay, <laughs> I would have chosen a different word, perhaps, but okay, that's, that's oh, good. You're on okay, the mend. What, what word would you have chosen? <laughs> Back to good old Rob Mark. There you go. All right. Also with us is Max Trescott. He's host of Aviation News Talk podcast. He's a national CFI of the year, and he's an expert on learning to fly or purchase a Cirrus aircraft. Hey, hello, everybody. It is great to be here. I know I missed a few weeks, but this is a special night because we got the whole band back together. So it's great to great to see the whole band. It is great. And to round it out, we have David Vanderhoof, our Aviation historian, currently from the American Helicopter Museum. Yeah, it's it, it's it, we we were doing a lot of memories. It's Oshkosh week, of course, and so we we spent a little bit talking about the good old days, um, which seems like forever ago. But um, a shout out just today. Today would have been Glenn Towler's birthday. It's hard to believe that he's gone. Um, Oshkosh was his number one love, um, but so our our thoughts are out there, and we know he's looking down, smiling as he, everyone's out at Oshkosh, and um, so Glenn, we miss you, and so I guess we should get on with the news. Well, before that, though, just really quickly, uh, last week I teased about our guest this week. Well, it turns out I got my weeks mixed up, and it's actually next week. So sorry about that. But uh, not to fret, our mean man Micah attended the event where the University of Maine Augusta unveiled their new Cirrus SR-20. And coming up, we'll have some of the conversations Micah had about the university preparing 
uh, a new generation of students for the airline industry. But first, we have some sad news. And speaking of AirVenture, um, Rob, I think this just broke. This happened today, I think, as we record this. Uh, yes. Uh, earlier this afternoon, uh, we got word from Oshkosh that uh, Tom Poberezny had passed away at 75 years of age. And uh, it, for those of you that have been to AirVenture, you might have seen Tom scooting around in uh, uh, one of the Volkswagen convert a Beetle convertible uh, that had the top chopped and the doors out, and they called it Pober One, uh, and uh, it was his scooter around uh, the airport, and he could go anywhere that he wanted. Uh, I worked with him a couple of times when I was working with the airport, and uh, Tom was uh, EAA's president. Uh, from 1989 until 2010, and um, you know, was uh, something I could never stand to be uh, an aerobatic pilot. Uh, but he was part of the uh, 1972 uh, U.S. National Unlimited Aerobatic Team uh, that captured the championship that year. And I don't know how he did it because, well, of course, one thing he was a lot younger then. Uh, and that's the only thing I can think you can be to do aerobatics because it <laughs> makes me crazy. But uh, but he subsequently flew 25 years as one of the wingmen in the uh, Eagles aerobatic team. And uh, he the most uh, successful civilian precision flying team in history, according to uh, who wrote this? Dick Nipinski wrote this from uh, EAA. So I can't... Uh, I can't be sure if that's absolutely correct, but I think Jack Pelton kind of hit it off. And let me uh, let me just mention what Jack said today. Uh, quote, it's not lost on us that uh, Tom's passing occurred on the opening day of EAA's AirVenture Oshkosh. The event that he led into world prominence as its chairman beginning in, in the 1970s. Um, and Pelton went on to say that Tom's legacy is tremendous in the aviation world with his personal achievements as well as the growth of EAA, very specifically um, items that people that visit Oshkosh now uh, take for granted, um, like the EAA Aviation Center, the museum uh, up on the west end of the airport, the Young Eagles program that uh, just recently went through uh, 2 million young pilots or young uh, pilot wannabes flown. And uh, he was uh, behind the effort to uh, create the sport pilot certificate about 20 years ago. Um, but he's, uh, uh, and quote again, he will be uh, greatly missed, but more importantly, he will be remembered for all the things he did for EAA and for aviation. Jack said that our deep condolences and prayers go to Tom's wife, Sharon, and his daughter, Leslie, and the rest of the Poberezny family. Of course, Tom was the son of uh, uh, Paul Poberezny, who in the 1950s created the Experimental Aircraft Association. And uh, he led, uh, uh, which of course was, what is that, 70-some years ago? Tom was around in the old days when the Air Venture, of course, they didn't even call it the Air Venture uh, event before it was at Oshkosh, they called it uh, just the EAA fly-in. 
Uh, I've still got a tag, a uh, plastic tag everybody wore each year. You had to have cool plastic. It's an EAA fly-in, 1960. Uh, well, yeah, all right. Well, it, it was a long time ago. But uh, anyway, Tom is certainly going to be missed and missing his uh, over one uh, driving around Oshkosh this year. And it's a little bit of a shock because it was just nine years ago that his father, Paul, passed away at age 91. So I don't think any of us expected this would have happened uh, so quickly. And yes, Paul founded uh, this in the basement with his wife back in 1953. It's amazing. They've grown that to about 200,000 people over the years. And does anybody remember the name of the town that they lived in in Wisconsin where they founded all this? No. No. Uh, obviously, I do because <laughs> I'm a flight instructor, and I learned long ago to never ask a question you don't know the answer to. Hales Corners, Wisconsin, which was just out to the uh, uh, to the west of uh, Milwaukee, and uh, that is where EAA started, as as Max said, in that basement. All right. Well, we have some news to discuss this episode. Some of it comes from Farnborough, and uh, the first one comes from AIN Online. Boeing arrives with Max Order Boone from Delta and ANA. And uh, Rob, for those that like to count orders signed at the at the show, whether Paris or here at Farnborough, um, for those that like to keep a score, Boeing really kind of. Uh, uh, shown at the expense of Airbus this year, I think. Well, there weren't that many orders in general at Farnborough this year. I think everybody was uh, reacting to the fact that this is the first Farnborough show uh, outside of London that's taken place since 2018, because in 2020, it got canceled because of the pandemic, and now it's 2022. Um but uh, again, you know, Delta jumped in there and ordered a hundred seven three seven maxes, which is um, a little unusual. Uh, and talk about pent up demand. Uh, but I think uh, you know, in fact, we should have uh, John Ostrower on uh, in the near future to tell us about uh, what he gleaned from Farnborough. But what I think is the most important part of the story is that uh, uh, there is this sort of Damocles hanging over the head of Boeing because there's a uh, a congressional, uh, I don't know if they call it an order or a mandate that said that if um, uh, the 737 MAX 10 is not certified before the end of this year, which gives us uh, August, September, October, November, and December, five months, um, that Boeing is going to have to re- uh, redesign the uh, crew alerting system on the airplane, which is going to cost a ton of money. And of course, Boeing has already said, we ain't doing that. So uh, I believe that while the orders are, or the order is uh, uh, genuine, it's also a, uh, a point out to Congress to say, guys, Boeing needs an extension uh, to, to get this airplane certified because it probably isn't going to make it before the end of the year. And won't you help that when one of the largest airlines in the nation just bought a hundred new of the new Boeing airplanes? You're not going to trash that, are you? 
So yes, so the Boeings are important, but again, it's a, it's a message to Congress. It's kind of a tense situation, I think, because the the stakes are so. I'm not tense. Hi, hi here. Well, I think um, Boeing might be a little bit tense, but the numbers I see for Boeing in terms of firm orders at Farnborough are 172. So uh, this uh, 100 plane order for the Max 10 jets from Delta is, is the, of course, the the largest one. Airbus uh, signed 85 orders, but. Uh, a couple of points that to be made about that is that uh, before the show, Airbus uh, received a commitment for 292 jets from Chinese customers recently. Uh, so that's not included in that count. And even more so than that, Airbus has a much, much larger backlog than than Boeing does at this time. So I, I think, uh, you know, celebrating uh, Boeing's success uh, is you know maybe a little premature, although that's great that they got that that order from Delta. But another thing that uh, Delta got out of this, I'll say, is Delta Tech Ops. Um, Delta Tech Ops is going to become a provider of MRO services for the CFMI Leap One B engines, right? The same engine that's on the on the seven three seven Max jets. So. Whether or not that all figured into the economics of that of the deal and helped push Delta towards the Boeing offering um, is you know it's interesting to to contemplate, but that gives Delta Tech Ops MRO responsibility, maintenance, repair, and overhaul for providers of that engine worldwide, um, which is a you know which is a great thing for Delta Tech Ops. It absolutely is. So there's a lot of money at stake here uh, for uh, for Boeing, for Delta. Uh, obviously, I don't think Delta has put up as much money as Boeing is putting up because I I don't I still don't think Boeing's making any money on the Maxes. But uh, uh, but again, this is a uh, a message to Congress. And you made a good point, Max. I forgot about the uh, the MRO services. That's even a bigger, you're not going to let this go in the garbage can, are you, Congress, by not doing the right thing? Which is, of course, to me, they may do that. But then how long of an extension, considering the uh, the uh, insanity that we've seen over the last couple of years with the FAA, how much longer is uh, Boeing going to need to get the MAX 10 certified? Right, exactly. Uh, it's a you know it's a critical thing, and I think that there are a lot of uh, forces out there, organizations that are not particularly predisposed to cut Boeing a lot of slack when it comes to certification, because of obvious reasons. Whether it has an impact or not, we'll we'll find out uh, over the next next few months, I suppose. All right. There's uh, another forecast out from Forecast International. It's called the Market for Fighter Aircraft, and it can be uh, your, uh, your your very own. You can have your very own copy for a mere two thousand fifty dollars. But Forecast International has this uh, this study out, and it projects over thirty eight hundred fighters to be built between twenty twenty two and 
2020, uh, 2031, and in 2022 dollars, that represents $281 billion, so pretty significant. And David, most of these are, or at least the, uh, the, the largest component of these are F-35s. Well, yeah, the F-35 is rapidly becoming the choice aircraft from most air forces, especially air forces that currently fly the F-16. Um, so, so it's definitely the A version is going to be the numerical m- version over the um, B and C. But the F-35 is for exports is rapidly growing and more and more countries are taking it to replace their fourth-generation fighters to provide a fifth-generation fighter. It's making it tougher for the European countries, for like the Rafale and um, the Eurofighter. Um, so they're going to have to come up with their next-generation fighters. But definitely we will be seeing F-35s at least for the next 30 years be in production if if if. Every F-16 that is being currently produced needs to be replaced by an F-35. Um, definitely the export, Lockheed is betting on the export capability of the F-35. They did, they did not want to lose. The lesson Lockheed had was they were never going to let the F-22 problem occur again, where the F-22 was not allowed to be exported. And they lost all of that long-term revenue. So between the F-35 and the F-16, Lockheed will probably be in the fighter business a very long time. Mm, For sure. I wonder how the accounting works for this, because as the volume of the F-35A goes up, the unit price will will go down. Now, the, the Bs and Cs have some commonality, you know, with the As, but I wonder how much of a cost reduction or a price reduction rather in the A's will spill over to the the B's and C's or if the price differential between those will continue to grow. I I don't know how that works in this case. I I don't know if you've got any precedent or not. Well, of the three of them, the least exportable currently is the the F-35C, the Navy version with the larger wing and the reinforced, right? Um, The B is becoming an export export choice for um, countries like the Royal uh, Great Britain, which has them for the Royal Navy. The Italians have them for their Navy. Um, any of the countries that currently fly the Harrier will want the B. So uh, you can see Spain. And usually there's a trickle-down effect that once, you know, countries are, that are flying F-16As are are getting leftovers F thirty F sixteens from countries that have bought newer fighters and and so they they sort of flow downhill but the longevity probably will be there for a long time and with the crisis in Ukraine there are more countries trying to get on board with NATO compatible aircraft like the F thirty five did you have a thought Rob well isn't it interesting that it, as David mentioned the uh, the Ukraine Situation that uh, until you know February first, roughly of this year, uh, countries in Europe and other, eh, well, I don't know, yeah, we might buy some fighters, maybe we won't, yeah, maybe we can get along with what we have. Or, but once uh, once the Russians invaded uh, Ukraine, suddenly everybody was was slapped out of a a sense of complacency, and everybody, even the Germans, want airplanes 
a lot of airplanes right now. All right. Another item, uh, Micah brought this one up. Airbus and CFM International launch a flight test demonstrator for advanced open fan architecture. So uh, Airbus and CFMI, they're collaborating on an open fan engine architecture. You could also call it open rotor or unducted fan. The terminology kind of changes over time. But they are testing this engine on an A380, three of the original engine still, and then this uh, this demonstrator, this flight test demonstrator, replacing one of the engines on the A380. Uh, I think it's the number two engine that it that it replaces. But uh, open fan, open rotor, untucked fan, that's been the the big game changing technology that's kind of always out there. 10 years or so. And it's been that way since, since about the seventies. Um, but you get a lot of, uh, uh, propulsive efficiency, uh, when you go with a, with an open fan, a kind of a design in, in this iteration of it, uh, the fan is in the front in the past. We've seen them with the fan in the rear and, uh, oftentimes with a counter rotating, uh, with a counter-rotating fan in addition. This one appears to have the front fan and then what looks to me like a, a, a set of uh, variable stators behind it, which would make sense. But um, it's another step. There's always been a lot of issues associated with this approach. Noise was always uh, one of them. Another one is uh, passenger acceptance because the diameter of this is huge. If you think the... Um, you know, the, uh, the high bypass turbofans we see these days on aircraft have huge diameters. Uh, this is even larger. And so that also has an impact on placement on the aircraft. Frequently you see them on the tail. Sometimes, uh, you know, if you have a, a high wing, maybe you might fit underneath the wing, but mm, that could be kind of kind of problematic. So... It's another step in this. But like I say, people have been developing, working this for, for decades, really. All right. Another uh, another military story uh, from the Air Force Times. Air Force considers dropping KC-46 co-pilot on some missions. Rob, this is uh, the, the Air Force Air Mobility Command, uh, looking at the crew size of the, the, the Boeing KC-46 tankers. And particularly with respect to uh, dangerous missions, I think. Well, the the story that Mobility Command and David, you you are more of an expert on this than I. But uh, the story the Mobility Command is uh, is putting out is that they'd like to reduce the risk of uh, flying KC forty six tankers uh, into uh, problematic situations and they could reduce the risk quite a bit if they just dropped off one of the pilots. Uh, and that doesn't mean after takeoff, but uh, it's, it's, um, it, it's a tough one to figure out because I, I don't know, David, does that make sense for you uh, that this is a risk factor? It sounds more like a, like a money issue or a, an, a uh, you know, an availability of pilot issue to me. I think personally, it's a pilot shortage issue. Um, the way the Air Mobility Command was presenting it, I don't think is the really the way it came off sounding like 
in high risk environments, we're going to put one pilot in um, to reduce. The, but it seems to me that would be the not the time that you would be flying one pilot. If you were transiting the aircraft from Europe or whatever, you, I mean, you're you're talking flight crews, so maybe they're going to talk about reducing the flight crews and maybe only having one in the cockpit. But you're not having you're not flying three or four people; you're flying two. Keep one right, but it it is sort of a weird concept that. In a combat situation, you'd only be flying one pilot. I don't think that that's necessarily... And I don't know what the KC-46 has as far as a crew goes for a long-term mission. Um, If they are flying four people aboard the aircraft for a flight crew, two pilots, two um, co-pilots, I could see them dropping one of them um, but having an aircraft fly with only one pilot, I know we've talked about this before, but I don't think anyone in their right mind would think that that was a good idea, especially not in a um, high threat environment. Yeah, I totally agree. This is a bad idea. You know, I find that it's so much more comfortable flying with two pilots. Two pilot crews have been shown to be much safer than single pilot crews. I mean, the benefit of having two pilots is, you know, pilots always make mistakes on every flight. Usually they're small. But when there are two pilots, man, there's just about 100% chance that that mistake is going to get caught by the other pilot. When it's one pilot, the stress goes up pretty high because now you know that there's nobody catch your mistakes. And so you're working harder just to make sure that you catch everything. So, boy, I would not be happy flying an airplane this big with just one pilot. Uh, to me, that's crazy. Put this in perspective, if, if people don't realize the KC-46 is a 767. I don't know if you want a 767 tooling around with one pilot. I mean, I don't even think the Air cargo airlines um, use one pilots on their on their long haul aircraft or or for any mission whatsoever. So, I, I Lord knows what the Air Force is thinking. Other than um, it's a crew issue, and it's going to be some way for them to say we need more crew, and we know that recruiting is down across the board. So. I yeah I don't they're, they're going to have to do a lot of automation and and. You know, I would rather have the aircraft be manned remotely than it would than um, uncrewed or minimal crew aboard the aircraft. Yeah, and I think some of the the, the airmen, the crew, um, have also voiced that same concern. The article that we have in the Air Force Times points out that there's a, a, a Facebook page that's popular with airmen and. Uh, there's a lot of chatter in there, I guess, that the Air Mobility Center, uh, Command rather, had, uh, quote, hatched the idea because of a pilot shortage at McConnell Air Force Base in Kansas. So, yeah, I guess uh, some different ways of looking at this at the present time, but I think it'll sort out. Not a good idea. Yeah. All right. Did, well, this, this might be a good idea. In fact, I kind of like this idea a lot from Seattle Medium. This airline is launching electronic bag tags to speed up airport check-in. Boy, anything that does that is a good idea in my book, don't you think, Max? 
Yeah, I thought this was a rather clever idea. Uh, Alaska Airlines has announced that they're going to be selling electronic bag tags. They don't say how much it's going to cost, but essentially it'll be a reusable tag. You attach it to your bag. Each time you fly on Alaska, I believe uh, 24 hours before the flight, you pull out your mobile flight, basically touch the phone to the tag, and it's now updated with uh, the current flight information. This way, when you get to the airport, all you do is just drop the bag off right with the uh, personnel. You don't have to spend any time at a kiosk, uh, printing out a bag tag. Company expects that will cut the time spent dropping off luggage by nearly 40%. Uh, and here's the key. We'll also free up employees to deal with other issues <laughs> at the airport. So we keep talking about stories where uh, we have uh, shortages of personnel. And this might be you know, one thing that's in, in response to that. Uh, they say that they're going to start this at uh, my home airport, where I just arrived last night at uh, 1030 as I came back from a flight. And that's uh, San Jose Airport here in uh, Northern California. So pretty uh, clever idea. And I guess this will now be the second electronic tag on a bag because anyone who's savvy puts an Apple AirTag in their bag as well so they can find it after the airlines lose it. Yes. Yeah. I think this is a great idea. It sounds like uh, something that's very, very promising. Almost, you know, an, an obvious solution to reducing the, the process time for baggage. So I'm glad to see that someone is doing this good for Alaska. Speaking of Alaska. Right. Speaking of Alaska, Rob, I don't know. You know, we, we see a couple of examples here of, um, I don't know, pilots deciding that they're not going to fly the plane after all. What's going on here? Well, the the next to this story and the story we have uh, coming up uh, show the captains to be at their worst uh, because I can't think of anything more unprofessional than what we found with an, uh, an Alaska Airlines flight uh, last week. Of course, this came from Paddle Your Own Canoe, that uh, the captain and the uh, first officer had a disagreement uh, about something uh, we'll never know what exactly, uh, but the captain uh, just got up and took his bags and walked off the airplane And uh, after they got back to the gate. And uh, this is just crazy. I've never heard of anything like this in my, well, I shouldn't say I've never heard it, but it is, it is very, very infrequent. And uh, it, it's a good way for uh, both of those cockpit members to get a little free time off. And when I mean free, I mean they're probably not going to get paid for this. Um, but of all things, they taxied the airplane back to the gate, and uh, the captain headed off, and they left the cabin full of passengers and, and flight attendants and said, bye-bye. And there was somebody uh, that posted a video of the captain walking off, uh, headed down the terminal uh, terminal corridor, and... Uh, now, I have not been able to find anything out about how this has changed in the last week since I posted this, but I would sure like to know. So if we have any uh, Alaska crew members out there, oh, God, tell us what happened. <laughs> because, again, this is just this is just so unprofessional. Uh, I, I mean, I cannot believe short of uh, the only thing I can think of that would make this work is if uh, perhaps the uh, first officer said to the captain, if I fly with you, I'm going to get us to 
35,000 feet and I'm going to punch your lights out or or something <laughs> that the captain felt threatened. But again, if this video was accurate, it didn't look like a captain that was easily threatened, at least not to me. So I, I'd be I'd really be interested to know uh, how this went down. But of course, the airplane was three or four hours late while the because uh, it was sitting in Washington at at, at um, I don't actually I don't know if it was at Dulles or at National, but um, you know that's not exactly a uh, an Alaska hub. So getting a, a reserve pilot in there was probably not super easy. But they did eventually get people to. Uh, uh, their destination about four hours late. Well, that's good. Yeah, this was from uh, Dulles to uh, to San Francisco. And I was thinking, I think we've all had the experience where we've encountered somebody who we just, uh, on a particular day, under a particular set of circumstances, the two of us just cannot get along, can't, can't work together. And I think it's to the credit of probably the captain that he said, all right, enough, we're going back. Because I, I frankly, I can't think of a more dangerous situation than two people in the cockpit uh, angry with each other. I mean, that that to me is just a, a recipe for disaster. So someone someone really uh, <laughs> kind of decided to do the, the right thing. I had read separately somewhere that both were uh, interviewed afterwards by management and both were, you know, given kind of a, you know, a green light. So for whatever reason, I guess they, they didn't uh, necessarily assign, you know, blame or didn't, uh, you know, put someone on leave or something like that. At least that's what it sounds like. So kind of interesting. Yeah. The safety aspect of that is, is kind of an excellent point, Max, is that if for whatever reason, the situation degraded to the point where uh, flight safety was an issue, because of the emotions or, you know, whatever of these two pilots that, yeah, just uh, stopping, uh, calling it quits maybe is the best thing to do. But as Rob mentioned, this is this is one of uh, two stories. Another one involves uh, a viewing plane, I think. Yeah, this one is really pretty amazing. Apparently, this flight uh, was in Barcelona and the aircraft filled with smoke and the uh, cabin crew flight attendant notified the captain the captain immediately ran off the flight and was the first one out the door <laughs> followed i guess by the co-pilot followed by most of the other cabin crew leaving one flight attendant on board to deal with helping to evacuate the passengers. Uh, and so it's just, it's the most startling of stories. Uh, you know, certainly traditionally it's always been the, you know, the captain who goes down with a ship or stays, you know, last. I mean, we all remember the story of Sully after he landed uh, his aircraft on the Hudson. He was the one who walked all the way back through deep water to verify that everyone was off the airplane. This crew was the exact opposite of that. So we may, we may be seeing that, uh, you know, some of the airlines have uh, been promoting people so quickly that they've got some junior people that perhaps aren't really fully uh, up to uh, assuming the role of captain. Yeah, it's, it is an incredible story. And the, the Sully approach, the captain going down with the ship kind of approach. I mean, that's that's the way that I think we want it to be. We want the the crew to take charge in a situation where there's a fire or there's you know there's smoke in the cabin. Um, you're going to have panicked passengers. It's not going to be a good situation. I think it's kind of their job to to manage that situation for the safety of the passengers. And if this is really true that. <laughs> 
most of the crew just the first ones out the door. That's not good. And uh, well, and and as you, you're you're absolutely right, Max. They're supposed to be there for the safety of the passengers. They, if you look at the um, uh, the section of the of the FARs that dictates, uh, I think it's every fifty passengers on a commercial airliner requires one flight attendant, and they require them so that if there are two hundred seats, you've got to have five flight attendants because if something happens. People are known to sit there and basically go deaf and dumb. They don't do anything. Uh, it's not unusual for flight attendants to need to scream and yell at passengers during an emergency to get them to take action because they're in such a state of shock. But I, I'm sure that uh, if we had uh, uh, Sarah Nelson on from the uh, uh, Flight Attendants Union uh, here in the States, and said, can you imagine anything like this? Uh, I can't imagine her, and she's never at a loss for words. Uh, I, I can't imagine that she would have a good uh, excuse for what these flight attendants did. I mean, to me, they should, have, they should all be fired, absolutely fired. Well, and you said flight attendants. It's not just them. It's the oh, darn no, pilots. pilots too. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I, I, I mean, <laughs> When I said everybody, I meant I meant the pilots too. They all ought to be. Of course, now what you do, what you didn't hear, is what happened to the first officer on this flight. Did he run too? Uh, they didn't note it. Doesn't mean he didn't, but uh, they're not talking about it. This is a good story to to follow up on later. So I hope it, you know, it's in the news now because it's so bizarre and so out of the ordinary. But I I hope it. It stays in the news for the next few stages of this so that we can find out what happens. One more item, uh, this uh, from uh, Business Insider. We've been talking about the <laughs> the disaster that is commercial air travel these days. And uh, this, uh, this, this item is titled, it could be up to three years before flight capacity and pilot supply are, quote, back in sync. This coming from American Airlines CEO, Robert Isom, and speaking to investors. And um, Max, he's looking at three years out. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I was kind of surprised uh, in t two ways. First, I was surprised that he thought it would be three years. I was kind of thinking, yeah, they'll work through this in a year or so. But I was also surprised at just how candid he was. And, you know, frankly, if you're uh, giving a uh, – you know, an investor call or something like that, you, you need to be candid. So, you know, kudos to him for uh, being forthright and saying, man, we <laughs> we are really in a tough situation here. We're working through it, and it's going to take a lot longer than you might guess to get out of it. I've seen a separate story uh, which talked about not only do they have the problems that we talk about on this show all the time, which is shortages of personnel, both pilots, mechanics, flight attendants, but that story said that there also have been supply chain issues with basic things like pillows, blankets, you know, food. So all of the other stuff that they need to have on an airplane to let it leave the gate, they're having great trouble with getting you know the right amounts in the right places at the right time uh, there as well. Over the weekend, I heard a story in which uh, there was a, a reporter talking about Southwest Airlines. He said that they have hired 10,000 people since January and that they have about 
60,000 people. So imagine that, you know, one sixth of your people have less than six months of experience. Now we talked about this, oh, probably three, four years ago with Boeing. When Boeing had similar kinds of numbers, they had added, you know, 15, 20% of their people in a year. And you can imagine that there was just chaos with trying to, you know, assimilate that many new people into the culture and help them understand what their, their jobs are. So yeah, the airlines are definitely struggling. They are. In the article, they do make a distinction between uh, mainline airlines and, and regional routes and say that uh, the, the mainline routes, uh, the capacity should be sufficient in about a year. Right, So that's not so bad. But it's the regional routes that could take two or three years to get the, the capacity to match the demand, the, the travel demand. Uh, but that's, that's, that's a long time to wait. Well, and here's the real problem. Regionals account for 50% of all the flight legs flown here in the United States. So they may have fewer airplanes, but they're up and down, up and down every hour or two. And so if you're flying uh, within the country, there's basically a 50% chance that a leg you're on is being flown by a regional airline. So that means half the time you're in that category of two to three years to, to get everything working again right. Our main man, Micah, traveled up to the University of Maine, Augusta, uh, for the Cirrus SR20 unveiling they had. But he ended up talking with a lot of folks up there and learned quite a bit about the university and their uh, aviation program. And we learned about uh, what they're doing. We learned about some of the students and what they have gone on to do, as uh, as well as some other interesting things. So... Uh, we have a, a series of interviews that Micah held up there at the University of Maine, and we'll launch into his uh, introduction first. The University of Maine Augusta Aviation Program recently acquired a brand new Cirrus SR-20 G6 to use in training. It's hangered at Brunswick Landing, the former Brunswick Naval Air Station, where the program has its offices and classrooms, as well as several simulators. Recently... I was fortunate enough to be invited to the press event announcing their lovely new acquisition. Now, I had never been to Hangar 6 at Brunswick Landing before, but nonetheless, it felt like a homecoming to me. Why a homecoming? Because the first thing I noticed when I walk in was the full-size model fuselage of a Kestrel turboprop, the aircraft that never was. You see, it was the Kestrel, which originally was supposed to be finished in Brunswick, Maine, was the reason I first corresponded with the Airplane Geeks podcast. If it weren't for that Kestrel, I may not have become an Airplane Geek, and I mean with uppercase letters, of course. Unfortunately, Alan Klapmeyer's Kestrel would never come to be, but his other project, developed along with his brother Dale, the Cirrus, certainly did. And a brand new Cirrus SR-20 G6 is now housed in the same hangar in which the Kestrel was going to be built. Sometimes things just come full circle. A lot of people were involved in the acquisition of this Cirrus and involved with the UMaine Augusta Aviation Program in general. Some of them were in attendance and were willing to talk with you, our listeners. Let's hear what they have to say. We're talking with Lieutenant Warren from the Maine Air National Guard. And Lieutenant Warren, you're a product of the UMA Aviation Program, aren't you? That is correct. Yep. Graduated from UMA in 2018. And what got you involved with the program and what did you study while you were here? So I had an interest in aviation, 
and I had been looking all across the nation for some schools that I could go to. And I had heard that University of Maine Augusta was starting an aviation program here. And I'm from Maine, born and raised. So that was a huge eye-opener for me. And uh, I got attracted to it and joined the program and uh, knew that I could come out with a lot of ratings and uh, became a flight instructor after that. Well, that's wonderful. And, you know, we just got the University of Maine just got this beautiful new uh, Cirrus SR20G6. Obviously, it's brand new today. What did you train on and train in while you were in the program? Uh, we, we had a fleet of Beechcraft Sundowners and Beechcraft Sports. So uh, similar, similar look with the low wing uh, design, but a much older plane and uh, much uh, older instrumentation which has always been kind of the, uh, you know, the, the training method because these planes have been around forever, and they're excellent planes. But with the technology uh, that the aviation world has now, it just makes so much sense that they're learning uh, early with this new technology that they will be using in the future. Um, and again, it's just such an incredible airplane. You know, it's the newest, newest thing out there. No, it's, it's absolutely beautiful, and having that G1000 makes a big difference. Uh, having been a, a, a CFI, how do you feel in terms of training starting with a G1000 versus having the six-pack? Do you think there are any appropriate things to start with a six-pack versus starting with a G1000, or do you think you should just start off with the, with the electronics? You know, I, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I'd like to think that... Uh, because I learned on the six pack. <laughs> so I'd like to think that it's good to start with that, you know, and kind of get a, a good cross check going and just get familiar with, uh, you know, um, the, those style of planes. Because in the GA world, that's what most people are still flying. And if you plan to, you know, fly in that, uh, you know, general aviation world, you might end up with your hands on an older plane like that. So I think that's good. But for the learning side of it, I think it's time to start having them, you know, go right into uh, the G1000. They'll still learn, you know, the same aerodynamics, same basic instrumentation. Um, and if they plan to make a professional career out of it, having the G1000 will, you know, really uh, give them a good advantage and foot in the, you know, door with this new technology they'll be using with these airliners or private aircraft or corporate aircraft because it's all screens and, you know, buttons now. And uh, so I, I, think it's, I think it's necessary to now, yeah, start teaching students with the G1000. So what brought you to the Air Guard and, and what do you do with them? So General Farnham, who's here with me, I, I played hockey with his son, and I would see him at my games all the time. And he had mentioned and put a bug in my ear and my parents' ear about the main guard. And uh, at the time, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. But as I got older and realized where my roots are here in Maine and the opportunities that could present itself, I said, uh, maybe I should consider this. Started talking to some pilots and their, what their lifestyle has been like up there and immediately decided that I got to apply to uh, use this as an opportunity to um, make a career for myself and uh, try to set myself up for that next step. So uh, my uncle flew in the Air National Guard for over 20 years as well. So that was also a good uh, uh, mentality to kind of fall back on. Hey, it's in the family. Um, and again, General Farnham, 
I had just kind of started talking to him, and um, he said, you, you should apply to the Maine Air National Guard. So, And what are you doing in the Guard now? Are you a driver? Yep, I'm uh, piloting the KC-135. We call it the tanker, uh, also known as the stratotanker or the refueler. And um, we refuel a variety of aircraft, and uh, the Maniacs, I'm fortunate to be a part of them. They've got a great reputation up there, and I'm hoping that um, I can, you know, just give back a small amount that I was given from this university and let them know, hey, if you guys uh, finish up here, there's an opportunity waiting for you right up the road in Bangor um, if you want to. That's what I did, and if that suits you and interests you, there, we've, we've also got a strong interest in you as well. So, The KC-135 is actually one of my favorite aircraft. I just, we just ep- celebrated uh, with the Airplane Geeks episode 707, and I wrote a piece about the 707 and the, how it derived from the Dash 80 and KC-135. Um, but recently, you know, the ta- that beautiful tanker is, is starting to slowly be replaced, and uh, Pease has got the KC-46. Is there any talk about the main guard eventually uh, getting the, uh, the KC-46 once... Everything's ironed out with that? Yep, there is talk about it. Um, we're in the running with 15 other units right now. Uh, that's as much as I know. But, yeah, we're, uh, we have the possibility of getting it. If we do get it, I believe they said that we would acquire it in 2025. So um, that's pretty cool. It's a new plane. It's a nice, big, wide body. Um, but uh, right now we're still hanging on to that 135. It's doing just fine. <laughs> They are beautiful, and uh, there's nothing better than the, the sight that the gas passer gets as he's, uh, as he's doing that. Lieutenant Warren, thank you so much for speaking with us here on the Airplane Geeks. Absolutely. My, my pleasure. Thank you. A comment that I, I'd like to add is that uh, Lieutenant uh, Warren mentioned the sundowners and sports that they were uh, training in. And uh, I, I used to be an assistant chief flight instructor at a, a school in uh, Chicago at DuPage Airport. And and we were using those in the early 1980s. And so those airplanes, to to still have them in the fleet uh, 40 years later is un- unbelievable. But talk about basic. Oh, my God. Uh, they were very basic. Uh, but the other thing I was going to mention is that, uh, and I noticed that, that Max West smiled uh, when the uh, young man said that, uh, he had met uh, General uh, uh, General Farnham through uh, his son. And guys, girls, trust me, when it comes to this kind of thing, it doesn't hurt to know a lot of people. So please <laughs> don't be shy about going up to somebody that you see somewhere at a show or an event and say, hi, I'm whatever your name is and, and, and let them meet you because it is it is it's a great benefit, even if you don't see it uh, uh, you know, be, uh, coming to fruition right at that moment in time. And one thing I wanted to uh, point out, too, is that uh, when uh, these guys are talking about the six-pack, they're not talking about a nice craft IPA, are they? Tell, tell us a little bit about what a six-pack is for those that may not know. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You mean they're not? <laughs> I, I, I thought I was taught from early on, Okay, no, I'm just kidding. No, no, they're not. They're talking about the uh, uh, three above three uh, location of the attitude indicator and the airspeed indicator and the uh, heading indicator and all the other goodies that were steam gauge dials. And uh, and that created the scan 
the pattern of the scan that we use to teach uh, instruments, well, all, all pilots actually. And that has changed significantly since we have gone to all glass cockpits. Um, so, uh, but, but again, it's, it's the way the world is going. I think uh, the lieutenant warned me to a very salient point when he said, this is the way I learned. So I'm kind of thinking maybe that's why I think it's best for other people to do this as well. The concept that one learn on the older style round gauges first. There was an interesting study that was done down in Tennessee at one of the universities in which they trained students uh, in both types of aircraft in uh, glass cockpit aircraft, but never with any exposure to uh, round gauges. They took those students after they passed their check ride. They immediately gave them the same check ride in a round gauge aircraft that they had never sat in before, and they passed. And the reason is, round gauge airplanes already—I'm pardon me—glass cockpit aircraft have three of the six round gauges that you find in these older airplanes. So when you're learning to fly an airplane in a glass cockpit aircraft, you're learning really at the same time how to use the round gauge instruments. So I actually think that it's people's benefit to learn in a glass cockpit because they're going to be able to fly both aircraft. But if you learn to fly in a round gauge airplane, boy, you're going to really need a lot of time to spin up on the uh, glass. And, and frankly, for anybody who's thinking about a professional career, whether it be fly charter or fractional or with the airlines, something like that, the sooner you get to glass, the better, because that's what you're going to be uh, trained on and tested for when you're trying to uh, to get that first job. All right. Good observation. All right. Let's hear from the general himself. General Farnham, could you tell us a little bit about the main guard? When people, we have listeners all over the world and all over the country, and when people think of the Air Force and the Air Guard, they don't necessarily think of Maine, but it's a huge service. Could you tell us a little bit about the main guard and, and what we do? Oh, a- absolutely. Uh, I'm the adjutant general for the state of Maine. I used to be the wing commander up in Bangor, uh, the KC-135 th- KC wing that's up in Bangor for the Air National Guard. And uh, the, the most important thing, I think, for people to know about the Air National Guard is that we exist and that, uh, that we are a, a fully operational flying wing uh, that's got a federal mission uh, that, uh, that integrates with the Air Force, what we call the total force, and, uh, and really provides for the needs of the nation. Um, and it's right here in Maine. And for somebody like me and so many others who were born and raised in Maine to be able to, you know, do our time active duty and then come back and live in our hometowns and, and still fly, uh, you know, fly a military airplane, uh, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great opportunity. So uh, not only folks that, like myself that came back from active duty, but people like Lieutenant Warren that you talked to earlier um, who grew up here and then has the opportunity to join the uh, Air National Guard and go off, go off to military flight school and then come back as a uh, full-blown military pilot. Um, great opportunity for the folks in Maine, and, and uh, I appreciate you, you talking about it a little bit because sometimes we d- we're described as kind of the best secret, you know, uh, in Bangor. A lot of folks don't know that we exist or don't really understand, but, uh, but it is a, an incredible opportunity. Well, you got to keep it a little bit of a secret or everybody will want to get in. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but, but that's okay. You know, right now across the military, you know, finding people that want to serve has become a little bit more difficult. You know, the standards are still, standards are still high. Um, and, 
you know, and, and there are a lot of different opportunities for folks. And so in like law enforcement, a lot of other places, you know, you know, finding uh, finding the young people that want to that want to serve and want to get involved in aviation uh, is important. And uh, and that's the other reason this program here at uh, University of Maine Augusta is is so critical is just exposing aviation to to folks, because whether it's military or civilian, uh, there are some incredible needs in aviation from not just pilots, but I mean, talking to FAA and in, inspectors, ma- aviation maintenance, uh, operations, just there's many uh, careers in aviation that, uh, that are really in, you know, in need now. The, uh, the Maine Air National Guard is known as the Maniacs. And could you tell us a little bit about how the, the Maine Air National Guard got involved with UMA and the aviation program and what the involvement is? Well, initially, uh, when, when Greg first approached us uh, and told us about the program, there wasn't a lot that we could offer as far as direct involvement. But what we did do, and I hope was helpful, was be able to say, hey, if somebody has gone through your program, we guarantee that they will get an, an interview uh, to get sent to uh, military flight school by the Air National Guard. We select a couple of, uh, a couple of candidates a year that we, that we have slots to send them to military flight school. And uh, it can be very competitive. Uh, the number of applications we get really from all over the country has been growing and, uh, for, the flight, uh, for the pilot part. And, uh, and so being able to offer that, uh, offer that guaranteed interview, I think, was helpful in, in giving them some credibility to get started. And since then, we've actually had some folks that have gone through the program and become members of the Air National Guard, or in the case of Lieutenant Warren, actually gone off to flight school and now back as a full-fledged, uh, you know, KC-135 pilot. And what are the numbers looking like in terms of the, the interviews and the quality of the people you're getting from UMA versus the other folks that are, that are coming through? How, how are you doing in terms of recruiting or bringing in people from UMA? Well, it's really still in the infant stages. You know, as the program has developed um, and, and the students are able to get more of the tickets, you know, more of the certifications as they go through, it just every class really ends up having more competitive, have, having more com- competitive candidates. And, uh, and again, it's still, in its, it's still in its infancy, but we've got great hopes for uh, this as being a feeder program uh, for, again, not just the Maine Air National Guard, but also, uh, also aviation in general. And then one last thing, although it might not be exactly last, but could you tell us a little bit about your history with flying, your history with the, with the Air Force and the Guard, and, and how you got involved in it? Sure. I, I actually grew up in Brewer and, uh, and went off to the Air Force Academy. Uh, quite a few years ago now, 38 or so years ago, and I spent uh, I spent seven years active duty flying the Lear Learjet. It was the C21 in the Air Force, the Lear 35, and then uh, taught uh, taught at the Air Force Schoolhouse for the Learjet, and then came back. I wanted to come back home, so I uh, called up the uh, wing commander in Bangor and said, "I want to be in your unit," and interviewed with the main the maniacs and and got hired and came back and moved back to Bangor and. And spent the next uh, 25 or so years flying in the Air National Guard and, and working in a family business, on uh, a full-time nature, part-time guard. Um, transitioned after 9/11 into being really full-time guard, part-time family business, and then back in 2016, I was the wing commander of the uh, of the 101st Air Refueling Wing there in Bangor, and I got a call from Governor LePage at the time and and asked if I uh, would be willing to serve as the state's adjutant general. So. Uh, in 2016, became the adjutant general for the state, 
and uh, then Governor Mills reappointed me uh, in her administration. So, so I've been so fortunate to be able to stay in uniform, uh, you know, serving as the adjutant general, where I've got the main Air National Guard, the main Army National Guard, the main Emergency Management Agency, and main Veterans, uh, main Bureau of Veterans uh, Services uh, in my department. So. Uh, so that, uh, so just deciding that I wanted to get involved in aviation back in 1980 has led to uh, uh, a, lot, a lot of opportunities here, here in the state. General Farnham, thank you so much for speaking with us. And more importantly, thank you so much for your service. Thanks. We're speaking with Amber Kochaver, who is the most recent, or one of the most recent graduates from the UMA aviation program. And Amber, you went down and you actually picked this aircraft up and flew it back. Uh, yeah, yep. So Greg and I, uh, my instructor, we went down about a month ago. Uh, we airlined out to Knoxville and we stayed down there for a week's worth of training. And uh, yeah, I was able to, to get quite a bit of training with some experienced Cirrus uh, instructors and then we were able to fly it back. And what was your experience with a Cirrus prior to that? Had you flown them before? I had actually never flown a Cirrus uh, prior to that. So the week leading up to uh, the delivery week, uh, Greg and I did some training in the Redbird Sim here uh, right behind you. And, um, and that was all that I had for experience in the Cirrus. <laughs> so what was it like changing over from the Redbird over to the Cirrus when you actually got in the aircraft? Um, it was quite a bit different yeah um as far as the side yoke goes uh that was really nice to get that transition in the redbird um but as far as actually flying and landing uh, that was very different it took me a few landings to get it down it's just a different sight picture so what did you train on here at uma prior to us having the cirrus yeah so at the university of Maine augusta um, I did all my training at Main Instrument Flight in, right in Augusta, and we do our training in Beechcraft Sundowners and sports, so little two-seaters and four-seaters. So tell us a little bit about the conversion to a Cirrus and, and what, what differences and what you liked and what you didn't like between the Beechcraft and the Cirrus. Yeah, okay. Um, so the Beechcraft uh, that we have in Augusta is, of course, a little older <laughs> in the 70s, so we just had the basic six-pack and... All or none of them had GPS except for two, and it was just a little Garmin 450. So the avionics in the series were just mind-blowing when I first stepped into it because I didn't have that Garmin or G1000 experience. Um, so that was probably the hardest transition out of all of it. So what do you think about the G1000 now? Do you, do you prefer it, or would you rather be flying six-packs? Different pilots feel different ways about it. Right. Um, now, with the experience I have now that I have my commercial, my CFI, I really enjoy the G1000. Um, it was really hard for me to pick it up at first just because there's a lot going on, and I still feel like I'm learning something new every day. There's just so much you can do with it. Um, but, yeah, where I'm at in my career now, I really prefer it. I think that it's a really helpful tool for me to um, start flying in it because that's what I'm going to be doing you know, future in my future career. <laughs> and let's talk a little bit about your future career. What are your plans right now? What's up in the air and what's happening? Yeah, so right now I just got my CFI back in May, and now I'm doing uh, 135 charters. I just started at Main Instrument Flight. Uh, we just charter Barons, but I'm thinking future goals, uh, potentially the airlines. There certainly is a lot of possibility for that right now. They're wide open, so...
Right, yeah. So that's kind of the goal I have in mind is hit that 1,500 hours and start applying. When you get in there, every hour counts. Amber, thank you so much for talking with us here on the Airplane Geek. Thank you for having me. <laughs> can you imagine, Max West, can you imagine somebody saying, I'm just flying, it's, it's just a baron. Uh, I, mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I remember the first time I flew a Baron, which was back in the last century. You know, actually, we can make that sound really important, <laughs> like we're really cool guys, because we learned to fly in the last century. Uh, but uh, to to Amber and the other people that hear this, man, let me tell you, the 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 uh, uh, the uh, Baron is is quite a quite a machine uh, to be out, to be let loose with on your own. So enjoy it. Yeah. I wonder if she's in one of the new Barons that has the uh, G 1000 in it or one of the old ones that, that doesn't. And while we're on the subject of the G 1000, she said she was learning new things every day. There's a really, really, really good book available <laughs> that teaches you everything there is to know about the G 1000. And it's called, what's that called Max? And who wrote that? It's called Max Truscott's G 1000 and perspective glass cockpit handbook. And you can find it at maxtruscott.com. So I, I don't do enough to uh, to promote the book, but uh, you know when I hear things like that, it's like wait, wait, wait. There's a good solution that'll help you with this. Yeah. Oh my God, he's such a ah. Gosh, that's okay. He can he can cool, promote the cool book. book. Yeah, yeah. Amen. Now Amber mentioned main instrument flight, so I think it's worth uh, noting that UMA's Bachelor of Science in Aviation is a public-private partnership with Main Instrument Flight. There are flight school in Augusta. Um, and they've been doing this for a long time, apparently tra offering pilot training since 1946. Uh, so uh, quite a, a long standing reputation, but that's what main instrument flight is and how that fits in here. All right, let's keep going. We're talking with Dr. Joseph Zegas, who's the interim president of the University of Maine in Augusta. And you just finished for the first time trying the 3D VR flight simulation. Now, have you ever flown an aircraft before in your life? I have not. Uh, I, uh, we, I have been in the full motion Redbird flight simulator before, but never, never in a, an actual plane. And what was it like wearing the VR? Could you really feel or see like you were flying? So, well, I'll say is that I wasn't expecting the feelings that I was getting. So when I turned, I was feeling like I was turning. When I took off, I could feel, you know, that, that, pit in your, in your gut when you feel like you're taking off or whatever, when you normally fly, um, I felt all those things. And so it's, it's amazing what the brain will do uh, it, when, when, when the visual uh, you know, uh, environment is stimulated like that. So. Could you tell us a little bit about your experience with the University of Maine Augusta Aviation Program and how it came about that a state university, and I think it's one of the only two state universities, offering a full baccalaureate degree and an aviation flight certificate. Uh, how did that come about, and how does that fit into the roles and the goals of the University of Maine Augusta? Yeah, thank you. Uh, one of the things we do is we say we transform lives. And so UMA is really about adult students, but also uh, yeah, the 18-year-olds coming out of high school as well. So we're looking to align what we do at UMA with, uh, with what the workforce needs and I'll just also, also just add that um, from a veteran's point of view, this is probably where it f first started. So uh, we were approached uh, uh, with main instrument flight, and um, pilots, uh, veterans, couldn't get their VA benefits to count to an aviation degree um, unless it was tied to a baccalaureate institution. 
And so we are very military friendly here at UMA. And so part of this, the starting point was how can we help veterans achieve uh, and, you know, their, uh, their goals about, it, of, about flying. And so that's where, that's where, that's where it started. Um, kind of thing. And so uh, we slowly started working in a, this private public partnership with Maine Instrument Flight, great partners, um, and uh, slowly started to do this. But what we realized is that in order to really fully uh, help veterans, we needed a plane as well. And so the, the VR components and stuff is really, uh, uh, I'll say this, is that at aviation training, by definition, is a very expensive, probably one of our most expensive pro, pro academic programs we have at, at UMA. How can we knock down those costs but still achieve the quality and still let the students get their check rides and, and get their and get their certifications. Um, and we saw that simulation was that path. Um, and we could argue that it's a, it's a greener event as well. Uh, but but our focus really was about cutting down the number of hours uh, for the students to get ready for their uh, certification uh, flights. And how did the the SR twenty come about? This brand new, beautiful, state of the art aircraft, which is not a not an inexpensive aircraft to purchase. There are a lot of different choices. How did that come about for for the UMA Aviation Program? Yeah. So I mean, again, this is about the veterans. In order for in order for the veterans to actually uh, get into the program, we had to have a tail number. And so uh, we looked at other options, but uh, I you know the the point is that uh, you know <laughs> with biology, I'm going to invest in microscopes. And, you know, with vet tech, I'm going to invest in uh, x-ray machines and, and things like that for, for their operating, you know, surgical events. For aviation, the tools that are needed to do the training is, is, is a plane. And so, uh, so that, was, that was the first thing. But we also had to come up with a business plan, right, that we can not just, not just buy it but also afford it. And so. Well, the program's been uh, in business for what, uh 2013, uh, so for quite some time. I'm assuming that it, it has been reasonably cost-effective in terms of a, uh, a university program? Absolutely. I would say uh, we believe that we're one of the more affordable programs uh, you know, in, in New England, let alone the United States. So what else should we know about, about the University of Maine program and the aviation program in particular? Anything else you want to make sure that, that our listeners hear about? Well, I would, let me just say is that we're a resource. And so for there are some professional pilots out there who want to do a, you know, get ready for their, you know, recertifications and they want to load, you know, they want to use the full motion flight simulator or try the VR thing. Um, just get us, give us a call and we'll try to, you know, we want to we want to be good partners in the community. Dr. Shekas, thank you so much for speaking with us here on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Thank you so much. You know, the one thing we didn't ask Micah was whether he had an opportunity to try the virtual uh, reality uh, flight simulator. Uh, I, I've never tried one. Max, uh, have, Max West, have you tried one? Not a flight school quality one. I've certainly played with some of the, you know, the home things that you might uh, try with home goggles or, or something like that. But I was going to say, Mike, uh, is, <laughs> Mike is such a great salesperson. I've already started to figure out, uh, you know, how how do I move back to Maine and start teaching that program? <laughs> obviously, that's got to be. <laughs> I, I thought yeah. you were going to say the uh, the next book is going to be about uh, uh, virtual reality flight training. <laughs> no. And actually, I love Maine in the summertime, but it's just a wee bit cold in the middle of the winter. Yeah, but I don't know. That seems to be changing you know, across <laughs> the country. Move north. I'm ready to move north. Okay. Yeah, I commented to someone today that pretty soon Greenland will be green again. Yes, exactly right. Um, I, well, I hope not. One other item I was going to mention is that, uh, as uh, Dr. Uh, Sackis uh, said, this is about uh, veterans. 
And uh, in my day, uh, back in the last century, uh, when I got out of the Air Force, we had a pretty, pretty marvelous uh, GI Bill. Uh, and and honestly, if it hadn't been for that, I don't know that I could have afforded to learn to fly because, uh, I mean, it was proportionately just as darned expensive uh, back in uh, in the uh, days when I learned to fly. And I'm really glad I had it. So if you do serve in the military somewhere along the line, man, use those GI benefits. Yeah, for sure. All right. We have one more. Many of our listeners may remember Greg Jolda, who was uh, our guest on the show uh, back in 2018. I think it was episode 589, but we'll look that up later. And Greg is the uh, the aviation coordinator for the University of Maine Aviation Program. And congratulations on a brand new SR-20. It's great. It's it's great to have that plane, and it's great to see this as a cornerstone for what we see as the next step in the aviation program for our students. It's absolutely beautiful. It's a gorgeous aircraft. I saw the interior and, and that G1000. I mean, how can you go wrong? What made you decide on, on a Cirrus as opposed to uh, all the other choices out there? We looked at several. We looked at the um, the the Cessnas, you know, the 172s, looked at other ones, and we looked at the Diamonds. And by the time you compare the price, that, and we ran an RFP out, and when you look at the price for the 20 and you look at the price for the 172 and you look at the price for the 20, they're all about the same. And we felt that um, the Cirrus had the advantage. I liked it because it's a 215 horsepower, gives the students high performance. And it and we can take that. It's got 150 knots true, so we can fly that. We can get into Boston. We can get into New York easily uh, from here. And the students get quality training. It's got the G1000, as you mentioned, the, the Perspective Plus in there now. And um, it's fast. And uh, coming from fast planes, the one thing that one student, one pilot has to understand is the energy management. And they learn that from the beginning in this plane. This was all about energy management. And the, the uh, flight operations manual that Cirrus puts out for this is just spectacular. And you fly by the numbers and you're safe every time. You know, we're fans of the Cirrus here on, on the Airplane Geeks because we have Max Trescott as one of our hosts. And uh, so we were really happy to hear about it. Right, right. And it's it's all composite. The safety of the wings, the, the dual alternators, the, the, the dual uh, dual batteries, uh, the, the triply redundant systems. Uh, it's just it's an incredible plane and very safe. And it's mission capable for other than ice. You know, you have no problem with the weather training and and all of that. Very nice. Have you had any reactions from any current students? How are they feeling about it? Have they said anything or made any comments about the, the parachute safety system? We have not talked about that. We have our Redbird simulator configured now as the SR-20, with the, complete with the CAPS handle. And uh, my colleague, Greg Curtis, has put all of our early college students through that, and they've all experienced the CAPS handle and what happens. Um, and uh, they just, th- th- it's very roomy. We can take two to three students on the flights with the weight that we have. It's a very capable aircraft. And the students really like it. And they've asked to, some of them said, hey, what would it take for us to be able to come back and finish up our, you know, our training in this? It, it really is. It really is nice. Now, you flew it back from Knoxville with one of your students, didn't you? I did. And, and that was Amber Kochaver. She's a graduate of our program this last May. And she's an instructor pilot. And 
I chose her because she's a very, very, very solid person, very steady worker, and uh, she was in my classes, and I had gotten to know her. We we got one set of training, and uh, it, let's let's put it to the next generation of folks that that can really use it. And so she she came with me, and she she got ten hours. They had got through the advanced transition, and uh, I have her flying now with with two the two young ladies that we have in the pre-flight academy and it's just it's perfect it, it is just a perfect thing to see the young ladies doing this and and have them so enthusiastic and it's so great she got the 10 hours because it all counts toward her 1500 because she was going to the airline that's it uh she, she's still looking at that she's doing some charter work and all that stuff uh but she right now she she's instructing and she's learning <laughs> let's let's put it that way so we had a blast Greg, what else should we know? What's coming up with the University of, of Maine and Augusta Aviation Program? What, 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 what besides Osiris, what can we be looking forward to? Well, I am hopefully that we will be getting the 141 flight for us soon, and then we can get our course approved for veterans' benefits, and then we'll be able to take veterans in as freshmen in their private pilot. And that's a, that's a huge, huge step. A lot of a lot of colleges are you know, are shying away from the veterans because of the administrative part of it. But we think managing the veterans and we are a veteran friendly organization makes sense uh, for us to do. And so we, we're doing the right thing. Greg, I know you're very busy today. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to us here on the Airplane Geeks again. Well, you're welcome. It is my honor. Thanks. All right. There you have it. Well done, Micah. Nice job. And the only thing I kept wondering is, when do they get their second one and their third one? Yeah, <laughs> you know, just having it sounds like what they're doing is they're still keeping the uh, the older fleet, and uh, they'll perhaps uh, replace it over time. But I would have to imagine uh, any flight school that's got more than a handful of students is going to need more than one of these uh, aircraft. And by the way, I got an email from Micah last week. He had uh, mentioned that he thought it was an SR twenty GS. And he came back to me and said, you know what, Max, you were right. There was a typo in there. They really did mean G6, not GS. What's up with the geeks? Um, hey, I've got a shout out. I, I found out that we have a listener on Kent Island in Maryland. And I found this out because somebody I know knows somebody who knows somebody who said that, yeah, I know a guy who listens to Airplane Geeks. He lives over on Kent Island. Now, your name did not make the transition. So I don't know I don't know what your name is, just I know that you're over on Kent Island. And the reason that's significant is because I know Kent Island very well. In fact, at this precise moment, I'm not very far away from there. Did you want to come over and stay tonight? Uh, possibly. You know, you never know. But I don't know the guy's name. So uh, I just wanted to say thanks for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. There's at least one person on Kent Island who listens. I really appreciate that. <laughs> I thought you were going to say there's at least one person that listens. No. <laughs> yeah, no. Clearly, you need to uh, schedule a meetup. You know, go ahead. We should. Time location and have the Kent Island uh, meetup. For, yeah, uh, yeah. We could meet over at Fisherman's Inn and uh, have a nice Ooh, sounds uh, delicious. Have a nice meal. Yeah, yeah. So, Max Trescott, what's up with you these days? Oh, I am just flying nonstop. I think I've been flying for uh, every day the last ten days or so. It's not going to change. I still have at least seven more days uh, ahead of me. But uh, the weekend was fun. I did a Vision Jet trip out to Jackson, Wyoming. It's kind of interesting. The jet is up in uh, 
Washington State. So I flew commercial up to uh, SeaTac and then uh, got driven over to Boeing Field, which is, I don't know, six, seven miles away as a crow flies. And that was great. I wish I had time to go to the museum there. I'd never been to Boeing Field before, but really an awesome airport. Anyway, we flew the uh, Vision Jet out to Jackson and uh, the couple I was with got to hang out there for the weekend. And then flew back on Sunday and then airlined back down here. So I got in uh, fairly late last night. But I made up for it by having a short night <laughs> getting up early to do a very long mountain checkout flight. Uh, so this typically end up taking probably about six hours from the time we you know, start to finish. And sure enough, uh, we logged uh, 5.1 hours on the Hobbs. And I was sitting in that seat the entire time. So when I climbed out, I was fairly sore. But we've got uh, major uh, wildfire in process near Yosemite. So instead of going to the usual airports that I go to on these mountain checkouts, I found a, a new set, which was kind of fun just to vary the routine and go into some other airports. Also visit a part of California that I had never seen before. So typically I would be down at Columbia and South Lake Tahoe and Truckee. Truckee is the farthest north of the three, so it had the least smoke. So we did go there and then we went north from there to Sierraville, and then, uh, oh boy, I'm going to mispronounce it, but it's something like Nervino Airport, which is near Portola, California. So very rural uh, airports. In fact, at the first one, Sierraville, literally there is not a plane based there at the field. It's just, it's a runway. And I read the notes and it said 100% transient aircraft, 23 aircraft on average per week. And uh, we counted for two of those because we stayed in the pattern and made two landings. And there were actually people that stopped their cars on the highway because they wanted to watch us landing there. So obviously not too many people come in uh, and land there, but it was kind of fun. Cool. David, I ran across an article from HeliHub. And the title of it is American Helicopter Museum Voted Best Museum for Families. Did you know about that? Uh, I did. We got we got selected by the Chester County, uh, Pennsylvania, um, as the best museum for families in the Philadelphia area. Um, so, which is true. The majority of our population actually is families and families with smaller kids. So it's it's an honor and um, it's a good recognition of all the work we've been doing over, since our since recovering from the pandemic. So, but but thank you for yet yeah, noticing that it's an important honor and it shows that we're doing some good work for the community. Very good, congratulations. Yeah, and you know I noticed that uh, you added a second session for the uh, uh, I can't remember the fellow's name that was coming to talk about. Uh, uh, drone flying. Oh, and, uh, yeah. We added our, our second drone course. Our first one sold out. It's basically for younger people, um, how to fly drones, what are drones. And I think that's the 27th or 28th of August. If you're in the Philadelphia area, you can go to the website, which is AmericanHelicopter.museum. Um, and you can sign up there. Likewise, um, our first book club, will be this Friday, the day we record this, which is the 29th of August, is our first book club um, thing at 7 o'clock. If you'd like, we'll put a link in the show notes. Um, you can become a member, and then you can have access to all of our book clubs virtually. via. Um, it'll be a, a Zoom call. Um, so if you're a member, um, it's free. Otherwise, it's $25 uh, per book club 
thing. So basically, if you pay $25, you get access to all of the book club Zoom calls we're going to be doing for the rest of the year and most of next year. Great. Did, did you mean the 29th of uh, July or August? Of July. Oh, okay. Yeah, of July. Okay. I yeah. thought that might be. Yeah, thanks, Rob. So, Rob, are, are you still uh, – you haven't gotten back into the air lately, have you? Uh, no, I've been uh, I've been whirling away here at at flight sim uh, just to say okay so so that's uh, how you put the gear up okay right I've got the, I've I have been uh, as many of the re- listeners may know I had uh, some surgery uh, a couple of surgeries over the last couple of months and it really laid me low and it's been very very tough uh, recovering until last week. When they started me on physical therapy, oh my god, <laughs> it really hurts. I mean, and everybody keeps saying, "Yeah, but you know, Rob, you got to do this if you want to get better." I got it, but oh my god. Well, anyway, so for those of you that might be physical therapists, thank God for you people. Uh, but boy, it's it it is not as easy as it looks. But uh, I'm coming back because this would have been Oshkosh week. Uh, today, as we record this on Monday, uh, would have been the first day of Oshkosh. That's right. And is this the first Oshkosh you've missed in a long time? Oh my gosh, I can't even remember how many uh, how many years it was uh, because uh, I know it uh, when I was up there. Well, let's just say I don't even know how many years it's been. All right, but well, we're all going to meet in Oshkosh next year, though, for sure. For sure. It's an anniversary year, too, I think, for Oshkosh, as I recall. Uh, All right. We got a uh, a few messages from Micah. Uh, Let's see. He noted that, uh, oh, this is on the the BD-5 aircraft that we were talking about um, last week from us, from Spurwink, uh, from the fly-in. And Micah writes, uh, one of our listeners, Judge Arthur Rosen, pointed out that we forgot to say that many of you have seen a BD-5 aircraft before. He says that particular type, uh, although the jet-powered version, has been in two different James Bond films, Octopussy and Die Another Day. And then also, Micah says, in regard to the Lakenvelder cattle, right, my Oreo cows, uh, Micah says, I was speaking to a Dutch pilot this week and told her about them at Spurwing Farm. She told me that they get the name because Laken translates from Dutch, David, you should know this, to the word sheet. And Velder means the one in the field. So together, Lakenvelder means the sheet in the field, which makes complete sense, he says, when you see the cows. They look like they are draped with a white sheet down the middle. That was pretty cool. Uh, I didn't hear David saying that he knew that, uh, but you did, right, David? Absolutely, Rob. You're always right. <laughs> Fluent in Dutch. Um, we also uh, we also have a picture of um, Launchpad Marzari's brick at uh, at Oshkosh, and you know what? I forget who sent this to us. Uh, maybe uh, Hillel. Uh, probably, most likely. Uh, if it wasn't Hillel, sorry. Yeah, so we'll put that in the show notes. It's got Launchpad's quote, Air Venture is Brigadoon, a city that rises from the mist each year. No one ages, all are happy. You can eat, sing, fall in love, but step out of the gate, turn around, 
and it is gone. Only a bare field is where this mythical place once stood, until next year when it magically appears again. So it's uh, Brad Launchpad Marzari's brick. It's been just about a year since he passed away. I don't yes. see it. Oh, there it is. Okay. Uh, yeah, and then we have uh, a brick for Glenn as well. That's of course, a lot of people don't know who Glenn is, but another of uh, the a another Oshkosh regular who passed away last year. At uh, I think uh, Glenn was fifty-two or something like that, which makes us old guys feel really old. All right. Um, oh, back to the cows. This came from John in our Slack listener team. Uh, he says in regards to the cow discussion in episode seven hundred eight. He says, I also immediately thought of the belted Galloway cattle from Scotland. Apparently, they are similar with Galloway cattle being primarily a beef usage and mostly hornless, and the Lakenvelder being primarily a dairy breed with small horns. And so he's, he uh, gives us the website, uh, websites, the web pages, I guess, for, for both the Dutch belted and the belted Galloway cattle. Comes from Livestock Convers... Conver- Converse, conservancy.com. That's right. Livestock convert. I can't say that. Livestock conservancy.org. Don't you hate it when there's one of those words that everybody else can pronounce and, and you can't, <clears throat> you just can't. Yeah. yeah. But I, I have a question since you guys have been talking about cows for weeks. Did anybody talk about how to make a cow pie? <laughs> no, but I think we could figure it out. You just need a oh, cow okay. and feed them. Oh, okay, I was just curious. Okay. Um, I don't get out enough. Um, especially lately. So um, we'll have one more one more uh, listener feedback on Spro Inc. But first, uh, we heard from Gabe, and he said, wanted to add another airplane to the list of repurposed ones discussed in episode 707. This one got turned into a restaurant in the mountains of Costa Rica. And I can attest to what an incredible experience it is to eat there. Incredible views, great food, and fascinating history. I'd recommend it as a must-do for anyone who visits beautiful Costa Rica. And we have uh, we have some photos that we'll put in the show notes. But uh, there's a website, History of El Avion. Uh, and this particular aircraft that is now an eating establishment uh, is uh, a Fairchild C-123. He said, uh, it says one of the uh, part of one of the biggest scandals in the 1980s. Now, some of you old timers and Rob will remember this too. The Reagan administration set up a bizarre network of arms sales to Iran designed to win the release of U.S. hostages held in Lebanon and raise money to fund the Nicaraguan counter-revolutionary guerrilla fighters, commonly referred to as the Contras. By artificially inflating the prices of arms, the National Security Council official Oliver North was able to reap profits that could be diverted to fund the counter-revolutionaries of the Cuban-allied Sandinista government. (laughs) You're keeping up with this? This is the sister plane of the one that was shot down, apparently. So in October uh, 1986, a U.S. cargo plane, the twin sister of El Avion's own Fairchild C-123, was shot down over Nicaragua. 
a crew member, Eugene Hassenfuss, was uh, a pilot hired by a private company to fly, airlift, and resupply missions, parachuted to safety, and was captured by the Sandinista Army. Led out of the jungle at gunpoint. This is all true. This is all history. Hassenfuss' experience set in motion an incredible chain of cover-ups and lies that would mushroom into one of the biggest scandals in American political history, known as the, what is it, Rob? You remember this? The Iran-Contra affair. Contra. Yeah. As a result of this successful Sandinista strike on our Fairchild's sister plane, um, the cargo operation was suspended, and one of the C-123s was abandoned at the International Airport in San Jose. So this is what is now a restaurant. Uh, what could be more fascinating than that? Interesting history. I, I, I knew that. I just couldn't get to the uh, uh, unmute button fast enough. But uh, thank you for that, Max. Okay. Actually, there is something that could be more fascinating to this. Remember our listener on Kent Island? Well, yes. one year... Many years ago, when my father was still alive, he and my mother were, you know, it probably was Fisherman's Inn, actually, uh, or either that or Annie's, uh, at a, one of those restaurants. And who do they run in, run into? Um, Oliver North. Exactly. Oh, yeah. My parents sat at the bar and had a great lengthy conversation with Oliver North <laughs> over this whole thing. <laughs> So anyway, yep. who of course was the one that uh, created the whole Iran Contra affair while he was working out of the the White House on loan from one of the services. I don't recall which branch of the military he was with. Right, right. So anyway, and speaking of the Fairchild one two three, uh, that was no, the aircraft okay. that was neither used. neither one of you need, don't do do not <laughs> call it that ever again. All right, what do you want us See, to call it, David? The one twenty three. It, it's a one twenty three. It's not a one, two, three. It's not a C, one, two, three. You're not, you're not two years old counting your alphabet and your numbers. Uh, David's back. <laughs> but, but more importantly, yeah, yeah, yeah. That aircraft was used in the movie Con Air. Yep. And it's still on display currently. And I have seen that aircraft at the Wendover Airfield, which is in Nevada, right on the border of Utah. That town probably wouldn't exist, except it's a place where people from Utah can drive across the border and go gambling and see this C-123 or whatever it's called. <laughs> and, and you know what? You know, this story just keeps getting more bizarre because it, this is also true. Before that movie was made, the producers or somebody from the production crew was trying to locate one of those aircraft to make the move to make in the movie and they somehow knew about the airplane geeks podcast because we go back that far. Um, or maybe, maybe they knew about me in a previous life with 30,000 feet. <laughs> I don't recall. Anyway, they wrote to me and said, Hey, do you have any idea where we can get a plane? So I actually did a lot of research for them to try to find a plane. So yeah, Oliver North, the plane, Kent Island, it just all comes together. One of those, one of the most interesting things about the 123 was it actually started out as a glider. It was going to be a glider and then they added engines to it. So the Fairchild 123 actually started out as a glider, a, a very large glider, very effective glider. Then, it, But its biggest claim to fame, though, for the 123 was 
what it was in Vietnam, which was a sprayer, and it was the number one deliverer deliverer of Agent Orange, Agent Orange. Yeah. In, yeah. in the Vietnam conflict. So, But the 123 started out as a glider. Then they um, added the engines to it, um, and then eventually added jet engines also to support the takeoff weight. So, but huh. yes, but nobody in their right brine would ever call it a C-123. Okay, all right, all right. All right, if you're down in Costa Rica, and, and we'll have a link in the show notes and as well as a, a, a photo, be sure to check it out. All right, so for the never-ending podcast here, or never-ending episode, um, we have one more item. And so for those of you who were uh, paying attention and don't fast forward through the beginnings of each episode, um, yeah, you know that you I give the endings? I mean the beginnings, the opening, the pre-opening, oh. the pre-roll, I guess we'd, we'd call it. Um, so I summarize what we talk about in the episode so you know what's coming. And I do that after we record the episode. So these guys, I don't think, usually hear that stuff. So for last episode, where we were talking about Spurwink Farm and the fly-in and the cows and the pancakes, I said in the opening, if you want to have some fun, count, their, count the number of times you hear the word pancake this episode and send us your result. So John sent us the result after after counting and i'm not going to check up on this but he says that we said the word pancake 22 times in episode 708 so thanks to thanks john for counting i knew it was a lot i didn't know it was that many but there you have it i i think john needs to get a light <laughs> No, no, I, I think this is a whole new opportunity for us in terms of crowdsourcing. Put the listeners to work. Yes, that's an interesting point. No, no, the last time we tried that, we ended up getting grilled the geeks. No, <laughs> no, oh, God. no. That's right, that became Stump David. <laughs> yeah, so, okay, so that goes way back in the past. That was years ago. So we're going to wrap this up. Thanks for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Uh, we're always at airplanegeeks.com. And if you want to see the show notes for this episode, where there's just links for everything we talk about, pictures, videos, all kinds of great stuff, uh, you can find that quickly at airplanegeeks.com slash 709, or as David would say, slash 709. And you can reach us via email at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right, Rob, Mark, where do folks find you? Wouldn't he have said 709 as opposed to 709? I, I think David I think David would have said 709. I'm confused. Well, okay, never mind. Uh, hey, where can they find me? Uh, obviously, uh, spending way too much time making the Airplane Geeks podcast longer and um, <laughs> do a few technical difficulties. And a thank few. God. I've known you guys as long as I have. Uh, Jetwine.com, certainly, uh, where Scott Spangler has been posting some great stories. And uh, I do occasionally. He lets me post here and there. Uh, but also uh, at uh, at Aviation Week, uh, where they'll find business and commercial aviation. And uh, let's see, where else? Um, I don't know, on various social media things. Uh, what do they call them? Uh face mask or something like that on the um, social yeah something like that but uh, anyway it's a good show tonight 
I, <laughs> you haven't had to edit it the way I, I'm going to have to. Uh, sorry, guys. I, I, I think I'm losing you. I, yeah, I, I better uh, log off now. Uh, technical difficulties from hell. All right. Uh, let's see. Max Trescott, how about you? Oh, if you haven't heard it already, check out the Aviation News Talk podcast. And if you want to contact me, just go to aviationnewstalk.com. Click on contact at the top of the page. All right. And David Vanderhoof. Well, I think this show's gotten quite syrupy. So I think we can move on from pancakes. And next week's episode will be waffles. No, no. No more food. <laughs> You're waffling on that topic, huh? Yes. Well. Should we egg, on, egg you on some more? Oh God! Oh Jesus! Because all we do here is just make sausage. <laughs> yeah. All right, David. What? Okay, I have one question, guys. Oh, God. When did we do that stump the geek thing? Oh, that was like what year six was or eight, eight, years, eight ago. years ago. Yeah. Oh man, because I remember trying to get us to use uh, a clip from the Angry Birds music, and and uh, we didn't want to do it, but. Okay, anyway, you're right. Uh good night, guys. Thank you for uh thank you for putting up with me. <laughs> Which may be for the last time. Uh no, no, no. we we'll we'll expect you back next week. And we'll ask all of you to please join us again next week as well as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye everybody. Keep the blue side up. Nighty night. And thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>